This is The Bible Line, a live radio call-in program with Dr. Carl Brogy. Dr. Brogy is the senior pastor of Community Bible Church of Beaufort, South Carolina. And for the next hour, he's available to answer your questions, providing biblical insight and wisdom for everyday Christian living. Our phone lines are open, and if you have a question, you may call 525-1859 locally or outside the immediate area, call toll-free 877-924-7980. Now let's join Dr. Carl Brogy. Study and show yourself approved of God as a workman who is not ashamed, accurately handling the word of truth. We welcome you this hour to the Bible line. If this is your first time listening, we're so pleased you're here at 88.7 FM. What do we do at the Bible line? Well, we take people's questions. Some call them in at 843-525-1859. Some text them directly to us here, and you can do that or email them, I should say, at tbl uh, at wagp.net. You can email your questions in. If you call, we will give you preference over the text messages or, again, email messages. We should have a text message number, I suppose, so... We don't have that, but um, in either case, we're happy for you to go on the air live, or if you're more comfortable, you can simply dictate your question. And we address issues that are of concern to you. Maybe there's a passage of Scripture that you're trying to understand, or there's an issue you're facing in your life or ministry or family, and you're looking for biblical counsel. Well, if we can be of help by God's grace, we will do the best we can. So with that said, Rick, let's go ahead and we'll get started this morning. All right. Steve from Geneva, Illinois writes, is the Israel Bible a good resource? He says, I miss your preaching. For some reason, I can't find sermons on your website. Please help if possible. Now, if I may, I reached out to him and I showed him that all you have to do is go to searchthescriptures.org and then there is a resources tab. You click on that and then you can choose uh, from the drop-down either the series that uh, they are wanting to get information on or uh, any given particular um, uh, Bible verse whatsoever. So that's one way. And then we had another person that inquired about our uh, Search the Scriptures app and the way that you uh, easily find that, because there are a few other Search the Scriptures. The easiest thing to do is uh, just go to the iTunes store or the Google Play store, depending on whether you've got an iOS or an Android device, and do a search for Search the Scriptures, and then just put Brogy, B-R-O-G-G-I. And the icon looks uh, like a triangle, a Trinitarian yep. triangle. Mm-hmm. So uh, there is an organization, uh, .com, different organization, we're .org. In either case, um, that's a simple way in which to listen to messages if you have a smartphone and Again, they're available in many forms. It's interesting. Uh, there actually are about four or five Search the Scriptures up there, but you're the only one that is actually copyrighted. You got that back in yeah. 1997, I believe. Well, uh, actually, I think it was 92. Okay. But a long time ago. We it was. Sure, we sure did. So <laughs> Jesus said, Search the Scriptures because they speak about me. And so he's the hero of the Bible. So Steve here from... Geneva, Illinois, is asking about the Israel Bible. I, I've uh, seen it. I'm impressed with the quality of the binding. I, I love books. And so um, it's very, very well made. It's edited by a guy named Rabbi Welts. And it's basically the Tanakh. That's what Jews refer to as the Old Testament. 
So it's not a Jewish Bible with an Old and New Testament written with Jewish believers or Jewish seekers in mind. And there are some Bibles like that that are uh, very well done, like the complete Jewish Bible. There's um, some others like it, and so they, out of sensitivity, uh, will use uh, Jewish names where appropriate, like Lazarus would be Eleazar, that would be his Hebrew name. But when it comes into our Greek text, we translate it Lazarus. So things like that. But this is very different. The The Tanakh, of course, is a, an acrostic of sorts to describe their Old Testament, the Torah, which is the first five books of the Bible. So their order of books, at least for the first five, are the same. And then the Nephi'im and then the Ketuvim. So you get TNK and then you add the vowels and that's how we come up with the Tanakh. So the Nephi'im is the prophets, and they break that into two parts, the historical prophets or the former prophets and the latter prophets. The former prophets would be like Joshua, Judges, and so forth, and, and uh, they, they call them prophets because they show the interface between uh, Israel's lifestyle with what God had written through the prophet Moses, because Moses is described as a prophet. In fact, he describes uh, the, a coming prophet, the prophet, that you will see referenced in the New Testament in Deuteronomy 18, who will be like me, but very, very different, because he'll be the Messiah himself. Um, so they have the uh, Torah, the Nephaim, the prophets, the former and the latter prophets, and they're arranged a little bit differently uh, than our books are. And then you have the Ketuvim, the writings. So in the Jewish Bible, there are 24 books, uh, but they have the same 37 that we have. So like First and Second Chronicles would just be Chronicles. Uh, First and Second Kings would just be Kings. Uh, we have a, a, a group of books. Um, we call them typically the Minor Prophets. They just refer to them as the Twelve. So they have the same books. So should I get this Bible is really the question you're asking. And I would say... I probably wouldn't, unless you just like to collect Bibles. Why? Because uh, the um, commentary that you're reading is being done by an unbeliever. Now, if you want to spend, um, you know, $100 uh, for the Bible because you want that commentary and you want to find out what unbelieving Jews are thinking about particular passages, then it might be helpful to you. But honestly, all that's available on the Internet. So uh, it's just up to you. But as a general principle, you know, 1 Corinthians uh, 2.14 teaches that a natural man does not understand the things of the Spirit of God for their foolishness to him. He cannot understand them because they're spiritually appraised. So it doesn't really matter if the person's Jewish or Gentile. If they're lost, they don't have anything in the truest sense to offer you in terms of understanding the historical, grammatical context of a verse of Scripture. Uh, You want to go to a believer, someone who's born again, and the newest believer has more insight to the Scriptures than a guy with a triple PhD who's lost and unbelieving. So again, you know, most of the commentary that you have uh, in there, unless you just want to understand how they deal with it, um, you know, is not going to be that helpful to you. Now, again, it is helpful to me. Like, how would a Jew typically understand Isaiah 53? We see it as a great prophetic text concerning the Messiah. And the New Testament 
sees it as a prophetic tense uh, text concerning the Messiah. So you have Holy Spirit interpretation on the section itself. Um, they don't. They see it as Israel. But when you look at it contextually, it can't possibly refer to Israel because of the descriptive terms that are used. If you go to the Israeli Bible and you read uh, Genesis um, chapter 1, where it says, In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was formless and void, and darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was moving over the surfaces of the waters. Then God said, Let there be light, and the creation account goes through step by step. And you come down to verse 24, And it says, then God said, let the earth bring forth living creatures and so forth. And then in verse 26, let us make man in our image according to our likeness and let them rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the sky and over the cattle and over all the earth and over all the creeping things that creeps on the earth. So how does a Jew deal with this? Now, as Trinitarians, we see, let us make man in our image as a conversation going on within the Godhead. Um, But someone would say, well, you're reading the New Testament into the Old Testament. Well, one, there would not be anything wrong with that for the simple reason that the New Testament is as inspired as the Old Testament. And so certainly uh, we have a full-blown unfolding of truth uh, written for us in the New Testament But how would a Jew approach this passage, and how would the early church approach this passage before the first scripture was written? Remember, in the earliest days of the church, when they reasoned from the scriptures, they were reasoning from the Tanakh. So what would the Israeli Bible do, the Israel Bible, as they called? Well, they would take a rabbi, his name is Rabbi Rashi, he lives around uh, the 12th century, around 1100 A.D., And he said, well, God was humbling himself, and God said, you know, let us make man in our image that he is dialoguing with the angels. Well, that, I think, is very dangerous interpretively. Number one, there's no angels mentioned in Genesis 1. And number two, angels are created beings, and they are not involved uh, in creating anything. Let us make... That's a creative verb, only something that God can do. Only God can create. Now, the angels sang at the creation of the world, Job tells us, but they didn't help make the world. But when you look at it contextually, you can understand even from Genesis 1, because we just read that the earth was uh, void and formless and and uh, the Spirit of God was moving over the surface of the water. So the Spirit of God is involved in the creative process of making the world. So right there you have two members of the Trinity who are engaged in the creation of the world. And, of course, the rest of the Bible, Old and New Testaments alike, affirm that even God the Son was involved in the creation of the world. So it might be helpful to read the Israeli Bible that's just following a famous rabbi, one of the most famous of rabbis, Rabbi Rashi, um, where, okay, here's how they understand it. And that might be helpful if you're trying to counter their argument or to get a Jew who's really searching to think his way through uh, these critical details. So it's a beautiful Bible, nicely bound, really thick. It's big, uh, heavy paper, um, but it's commentary done by lost people. And so unless you're just trying to discover what they think, um, 
I would say you're probably wasting your money because everything they say in there you can find on the Internet uh, without too much difficulty. 843-525-1859. If you have a question on today's Bible line, Nyla from Beaufort writes, This question is coming from the students in the 5th and 6th grade Sunday school class at Community Bible Church. Where was Lazarus's spirit when he died for four days before Jesus raised him from the dead? Thank you. Well, it's it's a good question. Um, it's one that's come up a few times over the years here in the Bible line. What happened to Lazarus after he died when he was raised four days later? Well, the Scripture doesn't say. In fact, there are eight people who die, who come back to life, and on none of these encounters does it say what happened to these particular individuals. So these were eight people who were dead and who were brought back to life. They weren't, in the truest sense, resurrected from the dead. They were raised to life. And there's a technical difference. Sometimes a child will uh, ask me when I'll say, well, what's the significance of the resurrection? And I'm trying to see if they understand why it was important for Jesus to rise. And sometimes I'll ask a child, well, what if they had just taken Jesus and nailed him to a cross and buried him in a tomb and he never came back to life? What would that mean? And if they really understand the gospel, they'll say something like, well, it would mean he's a sinner. It would mean that he was really not God. And I would say, well, that's absolutely right. So the resurrection in Romans 1, 4, among other places, is called a declaration. It's called an announcement. What does it announce? That Christ is Lord, that death could not hold him in the grave because he never, ever sinned. And occasionally a child will bring up, because most of them at least know Lazarus as being one of the eight people, one little girl. It's happened more than once over the last three decades where they've said, well, but Lazarus came back to life and I know he's not God. Well, he was raised to life. He was not resurrected to life. Jesus was the first fruits. He's the very first one ever to come out of the grave in a resurrection body. So with that said, the scripture doesn't mention uh, these people. Some say, well, they had an outer body experience and they went to heaven and came back. No, it doesn't say that. It says that nowhere in the text. In fact, there's no reason to believe that anyone who claims to have gone to heaven and returned, had that experience because Jesus said in John 3.13, no one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. So they certainly didn't go to heaven. And of course, at this point, no one went to heaven anyway. They went to Sheol, and there were two categories of Sheol. There was righteous Sheol, and there was unrighteous Sheol. Righteous Sheol, also known as paradise, also called Abraham's bosom or side, was the place where believers went. At the ascension, Ephesians tells us that righteous Sheol was um, taken up into the new heaven, uh, the new Jerusalem. Uh, It's also called paradise. So paradise is actually mentioned three times in the uh, New Testament. The thief on the cross that day went to paradise, and he went to Sheol. He went to righteous paradise. Uh, We could call it Old Testament heaven. So sometimes we substitute the word heaven in there, but it's Old Testament heaven. Now when someone dies, they go to New Testament paradise. And so when Paul, post-ascension, has a vision of heaven, he doesn't go there in the truest sense, but he writes about it. He didn't die and go to heaven, but he had some kind of experience that 
he was able to record what he had seen, and it was so moving that God gives him a thorn in the flesh that he would never brag about it and tell some of the things that he had seen and been privileged to write to, to, to see in his heart. So he's very limited in even what he's able to say. But these people who say, well, I died and went to heaven, that's not true because it's appointed for a man to die once. Now, they might have had oxygen deprivation and felt like they had some kind of outer body experience, but you do not base theology on experience. And so we had all these ridiculous books that were written about, you know, people who went to heaven, a few of which were later rescinded. One guy in particular who said he was six years old and died and went to heaven when he was 18. He says, you know, I wasn't even a believer and I'm a new Christian and I made up the whole story, but our family made, well, millions of dollars off of foolish, naive evangelicals who bought books like that on heaven that have absolutely no authority who actually go against what God says in scripture to be authoritative. We either believe in sola scriptura or we do not. So we don't know what happened to Lazarus except that he was in the grave. I suppose, you know, if there were a case, and I've said this before when I've taught John 11 of soul sleep, and believe me, I don't believe in soul sleep. Soul sleep is something that's taught by Seventh-day Adventists, that when you die, your body, soul, and spirit are asleep awaiting the return of Christ. No, what's asleep, so to speak, that Scripture describes is not the person in the body, but only the body itself. The body is awaiting uh, a getting up. Just like last night, you laid down in a bed and you got up this morning God gives as much hope for the body as he does for the soul. And that's why Christians historically, traditionally did not cremate, but they buried. And it's likened in 1 Corinthians 15, the great resurrection chapter, to a seed being planted in the ground, a seed that looks dead and lifeless, but it is put down with an expectation that life is going to come from it. And we plant the body in the ground in faith, knowing that God promises to raise the body up. But clearly the person in the body is not there. For if we believe Jesus died and rose again, and that's the confession of every Christian, even so God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. What does he mean God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep? Because for me to live is Christ and to die is a gain. It's not a loss because I'm not in the grave. There's a gain. In fact, there's a sweeter fuller fellowship with the Lord at the moment of death because my sin nature has been left behind. And so to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. And that's why God can bring with him their departed spirits. We say, well, he's up in heaven in his resurrection body, dancing and fishing and all these little word pictures we use about our loved ones. No, he's not in his resurrection body. He's awaiting the resurrection of his body. Um, Now, is he given some kind of a spirit body? Clearly, it appears so. So Moses and Elijah, in their resurrection, doesn't take place until the end of the tribulation. Uh, They are seen on the Mount of Transfiguration. But the Lord will bring back with him those who have fallen asleep. This we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will not precede those who have fallen asleep. How so? Because the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, the voice of the archangel, the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. That's when the resurrection of the church takes place. 
their spirit from heaven is reconnected to the body in the grave or wherever it may be found. It doesn't matter if it's lost at sea or eaten by fish or burned in an airplane. God will raise it up and connect the two. They'll go up first, and those of us who are alive and remain will be caught up to meet the Lord in the air. So what happened to Lazarus? We don't know. We know he didn't go to heaven and come back to tell about it. Um, so what did he do? I suppose in the true sense, he experienced maybe soul sleep and he came back to life. And maybe when you question, hey, what was it like? Well, I don't know. I was just, just seemed like one moment I was gone. The next moment I was here. But it's an argument from silence. And to say he had this experience or he went to heaven is to go beyond what the scope of Scripture speaks. And certainly he didn't have some outer body experience because no one has ascended into heaven, but except he who descended from heaven, that is the Son of Man. So um, with that said, uh, we don't know, and I'm not going to say something the Scripture doesn't say because I'll be in violation of Scripture at that point. Great question. Those kids are thinking in that Sunday school class, and we appreciate them asking. Okay, very good. And we just got a uh, dictated question. A listener would like to know whether the Rational Bible by Dennis Prager and there are two editions. There's the Genesis edition and the Exodus edition. Uh, he wants to know whether they are reliable books. And is Prager a Christian? Well, the last I heard, unless Dennis Prager has had a conversion, he clearly is not. And uh, now it's possible that he's had a conversion, you know, in the last couple of months, and I haven't heard about it. But I suspect if Dennis Prager had a conversion, you would hear about it. Uh, he is, uh, you know, a national talk show host. He's lost. I have a good friend who knows him super well. He's a rabbi in Jerusalem, and uh, he's good friends with Prager. Uh, he was hoping maybe to get on his national show at some point to promote a book he wrote on the Holocaust. But Dennis Prager is lost. He's a lost man speaking, does not affirm historical, biblical truth, uh, rejects it in the truest sense. And so the rational Bible is basically his attempt to, what do we accept in the Bible? What do we reject in the Bible? And it's a fallen mind uh, approaching the scriptures uh, with the fallenness that it has. Look, uh, again, a natural man does not understand the things of the Spirit of God. Uh, They're foolishness to him. He cannot understand them because they are spiritually appraised. And so, do you want to read the commentary of a lost man? Does he believe in a literal creation in Genesis 1? No, he doesn't. He rejects that. He rejects the creation accounts as being historical. And so he makes it poetical. That's what Tim Keller did, a so-called Christian apologist. He said, well, there were mistakes in Genesis 1 and 2 if it's historical. No, there are no mistakes, none. And in my Genesis series, I deal with the so-called discrepancies that the liberals use between Genesis 1 and 2. Um, And so Tim Keller, again, a theistic evolutionist, which denies the historicity of those chapters. And so how you can call yourself a a Christian apologist and deny the historicity of Genesis 1 and 2. So he says it's poetry. It's not poetry. It's history. And there are so many accounts in Scripture that are based on the historical reality 
of Genesis 1 and 2 that totally fall apart if it didn't really happen as God said it happened. So where are some of these guys? So what Keller did, and I'm not saying Keller is lost, but he's done a great disservice to the body of Christ, not to mention in more recent years, he wrote a commentary with Sam Alberry, who's, you know, a born-again gay man, where he basically says gay attraction is fine as long as you don't act on it, and there are certain ways in which you can act on it without me being disgusting here over the air. But he's just wrong. No, those kinds of feelings someone might have towards someone of the same sex needs to be repented of as much as someone who is lusting after someone after the opposite sex needs to be repented of. So why he would want to even write a commentary with a guy who's way out there, who's wide opening the door to basically endorsing homosexuality, much like the Pope all but did last week. He all but fully endorsed homosexual homosexuality last week. He said, well, parents should have compassion on their homosexual children. Now, if by that he had meant that you should be loving and kind and, um, you know, trying to keep a relationship there where you can win them to Jesus, but that's not what he meant. Go and read the Pope's actual comments. He's basically affirming the homosexual lifestyle that if this is where your child is, accept the child. No, if you really love the child, you say, well, honey, this is sin, and either the Bible's true or it's not. So the Prager has done, you know, again, a disservice to God's people. Why do we want to read a rational Bible? Because the Bible's more than rational. I mean, it is rational in the sense that it's logical, but the rational mind, if I can use that term, would not accept the miraculous nature all the way through Scripture, much less the prophetic nature. If he did, then he would be calling Christ Lord, and he does not. Okay. Um, you started to bring up the LGBTQ issue, and, um, well, we'll get to that in just a second. We do have a live caller standing by, and we always give preference to live callers. So thank you for holding. Good morning. You're on the Bible line. Thank you, Dr. Broga. This is Anthony. Good morning, Rick. How are y'all doing? Hey, Anthony. Good to hear your um, voice. I just want to say um, I'm I'm so thankful for CBC having men of the gospel who preach, teach, and live the gospel. And I thank you guys for that. My question is, this morning, is there a difference or what is the difference between a prophet and a priest, is there a difference? It seems like you had some priests that were some pretty rough guys in the Bible, and it seemed like most of your prophets were pretty straight. Is there a difference between prophets and priests? And I'll just hang up and listen to you. Yeah, no, it's a, it's, it's a great question, and indeed there is a difference. Um, the office of prophet and the office of priest were two distinct offices, So the priests, one, had to be from the tribe of Levi. So they were descendants of Aaron from the tribe of Levi. A prophet, well, there's all kinds of prophets, as you read in Scripture, when they're introduced sometimes in the first line of a book that accompanies their name, and they're not Levites. And so to be a priest, you had to be from the Levitical priesthood. 
and there were different kinds of priests to the highest level being the um, high priest who, you know, had a unique position, not just in Israel's history, but in their service in the temple, for he alone could go into the Holy of Holies once a year where he would anoint the top of that box called the mercy seat underneath it, the Ark of the Covenant, and it was symbolic, of course, when the blood was laid on the top of the mercy seat, that the violations pictured below the second set of the Ten Commandments. Why? Because they had rejected the first in their idolatry, and so Moses smashed them when he came down the mountain. They had rejected God's moral law. Uh, The jar of manna, they had rejected God's provision. If you remember when they complained out in the desert, the budded rod of Moses, they rejected God's leadership, and so God supernaturally took a dead stick and it produced uh, almonds with flowers and everything else. And so when he atoned the top of the covenant, God didn't see the violation of his holiness, but all he saw was the blood. And, of course, it was a picture. And so the priests would do this time and time again, whether it was um, you know on Passover or on Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. It was a unique office. The office of prophet could be filled by anyone from any particular tribe. So they're always Jewish men, uh, and they gave us, uh, indeed, you know, a big portion of the Old Testament. So we speak of the major prophets, and we speak of the minor prophets. Now, to be a prophet, you had to pass the test of a prophet, and you can read about that in Deuteronomy chapter 18, where Moses uh, clearly delineates, one, a prophet who is coming, who will be the prophet of all prophets. It's a messianic passage. And so, you know, people in Jesus's day understood it in a couple of different ways. Uh, Those who were most faithful to the Scripture understood it to be messianic. But like, for instance, they confronted John the Baptist. Are you the Messiah? No. Are you the prophet? No, I'm not the prophet. Are you Elijah? No, I'm not Elijah. I'm just a voice of one crying out in the wilderness. Um, But the prophet was indeed the Messiah. So they could have asked, are you the prophet? And in doing so, are you the Messiah? But, you know, again, some of their understandings were confused, but it was certainly not confused by uh, the apostles. So the prophet is the prophet of prophets, but then there are prophets. And when a prophet speaks in the name of the Lord, if the thing does not come about or come true, that is the thing which the Lord has not spoken. The prophet has spoken it presumptuously. You shall not be afraid of him. And so that's something that God warned of. I mean, if a guy claims to be a prophet and he's telling you what's going to happen in the far future, how do you know whether you can believe him or not? The only way you can know that you can believe him is if he's able to tell a short-range prophecy that comes true. Uh, If a prophet or a dreamer of dreams arises among you and gives you a sign or a wonder, and the sign or the wonder comes true concerning which he spoke to you, saying, let us go after other gods whom you have not known and let us serve them. You shall not listen to the words of that prophet or that dreamer of dreams. For the Lord your God is testing you to find out if you love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. 
So again, you know, sadly today there are guys who go around and some women who call themselves prophetesses and there's no such thing. There are no prophets. That was an office that has ceased with the canon of scripture. The last prophet in the truest sense in the Old Testament was John the Baptist. And then there were in the early church uh, people who had the gift of prophecy, but that's different from the office of prophet. So the office of prophet was an Old Testament office. It came with um, authority. It came with divine inspiration. It didn't necessarily come with experience. And so the Lord warned us, even during the Olivet Discourse, that as he describes the tribulation period, that many will come, you know, even saying they're the Messiah, don't believe them. Well, what if they do a miracle? You see, we've got these guys like Todd White who runs around the country and he does these so-called miracles. And people say, well, he's done these healing miracles. What he says must be true. Well, why can't he heal himself right now with COVID? And he just came out online and he says he's out of commission for a couple of months because it's affected his heart. Why can't he do for others what he's done for tens of thousands of people as he claims? Because he's a false prophet. So you can't just look at experience. And that's what people do. They put experience over the authority of Scripture. So the office of prophet, the office of priest are two distinct offices. In fact, there are three offices that are highlighted in the Old Testament, the office of prophet, the office of priest, and the office of king. And Jesus uniquely fulfills all three offices. He fills the office of prophet, priest, and king the only one who fills three offices. There are some who might fill two offices, uh, but there's only one who fulfills three offices, and that's the Lord Jesus himself. Good question. I know that's a short answer, but we could spend a lot of time on it, but it will get you thinking, I think. All right, very good. Uh, Lorna from Auburn, Maine writes, why are there so many LGBTQ folks in the world who all feel the same way? I believe the Lord Almighty is love. But what I don't understand is if God didn't want us to fall in love with the same sex, why would he expect us us to live alone for our entire lives? That, to me, is just cruel. And then after that, there will be a question also about LGBTQ, but of a curriculum that may be taught in a listener's uh, Sunday school. Okay, so let me start with Lorna, who's uh, calling us here from Auburn, Maine. Lorna, it ultimately comes down to... Is the Bible authoritative? That's the critical issue. Is the Bible authoritative? Has God uniquely spoken through these 66 books we call the Holy Scripture? If he has, the issue is settled. And it's not any more hateful to confront the sin of homosexuality than it's hateful to confront the sin of drunkenness or adultery or fornication or any other sin that you can think of. Remember, Lorna, everything that you believe is based on something. You either made it up, you read it in a book, um, maybe a priest, maybe a minister, maybe a rabbi told you, but just because someone says it or believes it does not make it true. You can sincerely believe things that are contrary to the Bible. So the question becomes, is there any internal authority within the Scripture itself that shows that it's uniquely inspired? And I have a little booklet. I say it's a it's a booklet. I, you know, a lot of people can't get through a book, 
and I realize that I could have written a book on it, I suppose, but booklets are much simpler and it's easy to read in about 45 minutes. And it goes through five evidences to show the uniqueness of the Bible. Certainly, if the Bible didn't claim to be the Word of God, we would have a real problem. But it does, thousands of times in one form or another. Now, that obviously doesn't make it the Word of God. If I wrote a book and I claimed within the book that it's the Word of God, that doesn't make it the Word of God. So there are internal proofs that God has given to demonstrate the uniqueness of Scripture. One aspect of that is fulfilled prophecy. So when you take, for instance, the first coming of Christ, there's over 300 prophecies. Every single one of those came true. How could someone hundreds of years in advance predict all that Jesus would do? Not just things that he would do, some things that his enemies would do to him. When you read the crucifixion accounts, for instance, some of the things they were doing, they weren't trying to prove that Jesus is the Messiah, so we're going to do this to him. No, they, they, they hated him. They wanted to disprove he was the Messiah, but some of the very things that they did demonstrated that he was indeed the promised one. So um, if the Bible's true, then you have an authoritative book by which to uh, discern anything that you believe. So, for instance, in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor the covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. That's what he says. And so a man who likes to go out and get drunk all the time, a person who likes to fornicate with someone they're not married with, that's fornication, premarital sex, Uh, someone who's committing moike, adultery, extramarital sex, someone who's living in homosexual sex, someone who's driven by covetousness or drunkenness or swindling people, they are giving evidence that they've not been born again. You're not saved by giving up these things. You must be born from above. And when you're born again, only then will you inherit the kingdom of God. In fact, he gives a great sense of um, hope in, in grace to anyone when he says, such were some of you. Well, what happened? You were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the spirit of our God. Now, it's possible for a Christian to fall into any kind of sin, and so he will say a few chapters later in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 when he recounts Israel's history, he says, Therefore, let him who thinks he stands take heed, be careful that he does not fall. Why? Because no temptation is overtaken you, but such as is common to man. So if I reason, well, I could never get drunk, or I could never commit adultery, or I could never steal— then I'm really tempting the devil to tempt me. And so we're not to think more highly of ourselves than we ought unless we open ourselves up to temptation that's common to all people. But again, we're not talking necessarily about perfection, but we are speaking about direction. And so if the direction of a person's life does not fundamentally change, and so I reference, for instance, Sam Alberry. He's, you know, Church of England, Episcopal priest, uh, now he has a ministry which he's walked right in the front door of the PCA and other evangelical churches claiming to have a ministry to gay people. And, of course, when people uh, started reading his website, 
wow, they were just blown away, like some of the people who were working for him and articles that they were presenting. So, you know, two men could show physical affection. I was in Charleston yesterday, and two men were walking down the street holding hands. They were obviously homosexual. He would say, that's fine. No, it's not fine. That's evil. Uh, I'm not talking about a dad holding his son's hand. I'm talking about two men who are attracted to each other. That's an evil act. And uh, it goes on from there. So he would say certain expressions of that is are legitimate. No, they're not legitimate. They need to be repented of. And why, you know, he would be allowed on evangelical platforms, well, it's beyond me. It's just naive people who are ignorant of the scriptures. And so God's word is clear that homosexuality is a sin. And to call it a sin is not hateful. That's loving. Now, Nancy Pelosi argues that it's hateful speech. In fact, if you read the Democratic platform, the 2020 platform, you can pull it up. Just write Democratic platform 2020. The whole thing will come up. Type in under the search bar homosexuality, and you'll see a large extended portion of their view on homosexuality. Now, I'm not baptizing the Republican Party in righteousness because there's many wicked Republicans. But in the platform of the Democratic Party, and that's what I'm speaking to right now, they are saying that they want to make it against the law to do what we call reparative therapy. That is counseling someone out of the homosexual lifestyle to say, this is wrong. This is evil. Um, This is evidence that you've not been born again. Just like I'd say the same to someone who's living with their girlfriend who claims to be born again and say, no, you know, people who live like this, people who practice such things, Galatians 5, have no inheritance in the kingdom of God. Um, So again, we're, we're talking about a new direction that takes place. For this, you know, with certainty that no immoral or impure person or covetous man who is an idolater has an inheritance in the kingdom of God. Let no one deceive you with empty words. Don't be deceived with the words of Sam Alberry, though he is standing on evangelical platforms. For because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. And again, we've got these, you know, naive people, you know, Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary, which was a great seminary at one time, but they're adrift, and so they have Will Williman you know, dialoguing with the students in one of their brown bag dialogues, Will Williman, the former um, chaplain of Duke University, uh, a bishop in rank in the United Methodist Church where they have a hierarchical system, is the first to affirm civil unions in Duke Chapel, affirming the homosexual lifestyle. That's evil. You know, so why we have people like this you know, wandering into our evangelical seminaries and campuses and churches and denominations. It, you just, this is a result of this movement where the scriptures have been ignored and people lack basic discernment. So Paul is very clear in the book of Romans in the first chapter. And again, it all comes down to what is authoritative. That's the bottom line issue. Are the scriptures authoritative? And so there were people who professed to be wise, but they they became fools. Why? Because they suppressed the truth of God. And so God gave them over to the lust of their hearts to impurity. They exchanged the truth of God for a lie. 
that's really what happened. This is a picture of not what is happening worldwide, but it's what's happening in America. And so in America, we suppress the truth of God. We said, we don't want the Ten Commandments on the walls. So what do we do? We have to put policemen in the halls. We don't want prayer in schools. We don't want to say that God created the world. We want to affirm evolution that practically began to step into the government school system in the 1960s. And it's a short throw from the sexual revolution that then came. And did we repent? No. So for this reason, God gave them over, listen, to degrading passions. This is what God calls homosexuality. This is not uh, Carl Brogy. The Pope needs to hear this in light of what he said last week. God gave them over to degrading passions. For their women exchanged the natural function for that which is unnatural. And in the same way, the men abandon the natural function of the women and burn in their desire one towards another, men with men committing indecent acts. God calls this degrading passions. He calls it unnatural. He calls it indecent acts. That's how he describes the sin of homosexuality. All comes down to, is the Bible true? So it's now against the law in Canada for a preacher to speak against this. And sadly, last week in France, with 100% vote in the French parliament, they not only made it against the law for churches to speak against this, they made it against the law for parents to teach their children that this is wrong and to counsel them out of this lifestyle. This is evil beyond evil. This is wickedness beyond wickedness. This is a depraved mind. And this is, by the way, again, what's in the platform of the Democratic Party. A brother wrote me a letter and is a black brother. He'd been registered a Democrat all his life. Um, he's just taken off, growing, learning the scripture. He wrote me a letter one day and he signed it, a former Democrat. <laughs> and I love that. And I'm not here to wave the Republican flag like they're righteous but neither could I as a Christian uh, affirm the Democratic Party that is in favor of murder clinics for little babies to come into, and they vacuum them out, and they grind them into little pieces. You say, that's so harsh to say, that's the reality of it. Let's not hide it. They affirm transgenderism. They affirm homosexuality, and you're evil if you don't agree with those things. So... I would say to this woman from Auburn, Maine, I am suspecting that either A, you're lesbian, or B, you have a close relative who's lesbian. And it's too difficult for you because you say, well, they're just such nice people and they love each other. Look, there's some really nice gay people. You know, they're pleasant people, nice to get along with. There's a lot of nice adulterers. There's a lot of nice, all kinds of people who are living in the depths of sin. That doesn't make their behavior correct. And if they're born from above, God can change the direction of their life and give them a new heart and a new direction because that's what he's in the business of doing. If any man is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old life has passed away and all things have become new. But if you have a small view of God, then you're going to have a small view of the changes that he can make. Good question. Okay. Now, as a follow-up, uh, Bob and Ruth Ann from Leesburg, Virginia, they actually used to attend here, but uh, do miss this church. And they write, in our Bible teaching church, 
The Sunday School class is delving into the Bible in order to study and understand the biblical perspective of homosexuality and the LGBTQ lifestyle. It's concerning to us, and we're not entirely sure we want to get involved in this study. And just today, it was suggested we read two books by Preston Sprinkle, People to be Loved as well as Embodied. We know nothing of this author or these books, so wanted to ask your opinion of them. This is a road we're not sure we want to go down. We understand the church wants to go uh, this route as they want to understand what the Bible says and how to interpret what God is saying about this subject. However, we both know one thing, and we believe this one thing, and don't want to entertain thoughts that would challenge that. We know God has said this is an abomination. He said it, and that does it for us. But we also don't want to be so closed-minded that we don't need to hear other perspectives as we are to love the sinner and hate their sin. We just pray for them, but don't have any desire to be tolerant of their lifestyle. Our church leaders are not suggesting we move away from biblical thinking at all, but admit this is a real issue and we have to live in, not of this world. We need to study what God says and what this world is telling us. All this to say to us, it's like studying witchcraft. We don't want to even open that door and invite Satan in to try to persuade us. It's just a road we're not going down. We'd love to know if you know of this author because we don't want to even get involved if he's a false teacher. And then uh, the bottom line is that uh, she says, we hope all this chatter makes sense. Guess we're just asking for your input. Yeah, so it sounds like, and I love these people. They're great people, and I know they moved away as uh, getting up there in years to be closer to their children. And so you're in a crummy church. You're in a crummy church. Get out. Don't spend another Sunday there. Preston Sprinkle is a heretic. So he's one of the leaders in the revoice gay Christian movement, which is basically saying that, you know, short of full-blown what gay men do, et cetera, what gay women do, that any kind of affection is acceptable. You can live together. Um, You can have these feelings towards each other. You can kiss each other and do other stuff. This is evil. This is evil. This is evil. This is evil. And now you got guys like Francis Chan, who's now seemingly apostatized from the faith. And, you know, and he's, you know, getting in with this guy, Preston Sprinkle. Look, we've seen a lot of people apostatize from the Christian faith here in recent years. And, you know, people, some who claimed, of course, to be conservative evangelical Christians like Joshua Harris, who wrote that famous book, I Kiss Dating Goodbye. And now he, you know, he pastored a huge church, I don't know, eight, 9,000 people on Sunday morning up there in the greater Washington, D.C. area, and now rejects the faith and, you know, marches in gay parades and He's not of us, for if he was of us, he would have remained with us. But the fact that he went out from us indicates he was never really born again to be begin with. And so the seeds for the apostasy of all apostasies are being planted in our day. And Preston Sprinkle is one of those seed planters. Under the banner of we want unity in the church, And we want to, look, we should reach out to transgender, homosexual people. Anyone ought to be able to come to your church. Anyone. Anyone ought to be welcomed. Uh, But there's a difference between being welcomed so that they can hear the truth of Scripture and becoming a member and affirming their lifestyle as being acceptable and true. But we live in a day where, you know, people don't even know what church discipline is. 
much less what's right and what's wrong because the scripture is not being taught. They're only being entertained. Expository preaching is viewed as a dinosaur that's ancient, that a pastor needs to get up there and not be too heavy, not preach too long, just baptize a, a couple verses in it with his message, tell a lot of jokes and stories, and make sure people laugh feeling good and not say anything harsh or controversial. So it's it's harsh for me. Some people, you know, you're harsh. You speak against homosexuality. Yeah. I'm called to preach the whole counsel of Scripture. So you're in a crummy church. Maybe the pastors are born again, but they certainly lack discernment. Uh, there is a organization called Reformation Charlotte. I think if you Googled them, you could pull up their website, and if you uh, typed in uh, Preston's name, you would get a lot of direct quotes from him, uh, what he really believes, what he stands for. And you see, the thing with so many of these people is they um, they cover themselves as an angel of light. So they might write some article or even a, a book or a booklet that seems like it's good, and it, and it may not say anything that's actually blatantly false. You think, well, this is a good guy when in reality he's not a good guy. But that's how the devil works. He disguises himself as an angel of light, and if he does, so don't his ministers. So get out of that church, find another church, and um, that's what I would do. Let's go to the next song. Okay, we've only got two minutes, so quickie. A caller wants to know, is it wrong to pray for someone else who made a bet for them to win? (laughs) Who made a bet for them to win. Um, Translate that for me, Rick. What does that look like? Okay, I guess uh, um, you made a bet for me, and uh, I'm praying that your your bet is going to. So I come. so I so I bought you a lottery ticket, yep. hoping that you know, and I'm praying I'm gonna. But I will tithe on it if I win. <laughs> <laughs> right. So you know, um, there, there's har- harmless bets that you know kids make, and sometimes we'll, we'll make. Uh, as family members, but betting and gambling, well, that's a whole nother issue, and uh, it, it goes beyond the bounds of Scripture. All right, well, we're out of time. We appreciate all the questions that came in today, and thank you for asking. If you have questions, you can email them at tbl at net. and God willing. Well, we actually won't be here next Tuesday because we have David Barton. I think we have about 12 spots left of the 400, so he's a great Christian historian, probably the foremost historian alive on Christianity and America. And he'll be speaking. We have a luncheon here. You have to register online. We have room for 400. I think we have 12 spots left. Communitybiblechurch.us slash lunch. All right. Well, God bless you. I hope you walk with Christ. And if you don't have a place to go, come this Sunday. I'm going to speak on there's a sin that God cannot forgive. Come this Sunday, Community Bible Church, 9, 15, and 11.